Please join us for our service already in progress. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was Jesus born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thank you. You may be seated. So the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word genealogy, I'm going to teach you some Greek this morning, but you're, you're prepared to be underwhelmed. The, the word genealogy in the Greek is Genesis. The very same word used to name the first book of the Bible. So Matthew wants us to know here is a new Genesis in the story of God. This is a new beginning. This is a pivotal point that marks when God is going to do a new work to claim a people for himself forever. A new Genesis. And here's what this tells us. If we're going to read the Gospel of Matthew rightly, we're going to have to read it diligently and Christologically. Now, I'm going to break those words down. Here's what I mean. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you struggle just a little bit with all those names? Like, I'm reading the names, and when I got to maybe number 20, you're like, are we done yet? I mean, he's still going. There's 10 more names here. What's going on? I mean, admittedly, right, if you were reading this, say, at home for a quiet time, a bunch of us would be tempted to just go, okay, now we're to Joseph and Mary and Jesus. We're good, right? There's a whole bunch of people, and then there's Jesus. Whew, we're done. I, I laughed. Uh, Mark Strauss wrote a very helpful introduction to the Gospels, and he told me that there's a Reader's Digest version of the Bible, and, and apparently what they do to make it easier is they just skip all the genealogies. Like, anytime there's a list of people, it just moving forward, whole bunch of people, and next, right? They, it's, it's almost like, remember that classic in business called the tyranny of the urgent all of us are still there. We, we want immediate results. We, we just, we want it now and, and we don't have patience to wait for what's important. And, and I'll be honest, if you're like me, I kind of bring that attitude sometimes to the Bible. I want to know what I want, quickly get my little nugget for the day and move on. And, and the Bible's not like that, and especially the Gospel of Matthew. This isn't a, a microwave meal that you just kind of shove in there and 90 seconds later you're eating it. This has got to be chewed on. 
We've got to slow down a little bit. For some of us, it's going to take old-fashioned mental muscle to really get the blessing that God has for us. If we're used to, you know, a verse a day, a quick thing on our phone, done moving on with the Bible, we're going to miss so much. Because I promise very few of you have gotten a verse that says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob. Done. There's your devotion for the day, right? It just doesn't happen that way. We, we, we're so accustomed to getting it quickly and moving on. So here's the challenge. We're going to slow down as a church and take this book, chapter by chapter, to really meet King Jesus. And my challenge to you is over the next 10 months to read the gospel every month. That'll give you 10 times in the gospel of Matthew. And I promise you're going to be blessed. You're going to be changed for spending that time chewing on this book. Most Western readers don't really hear a book till about reading number three or four. And so when we have this time, like a steak marinating it, it's going to get better each time we read it. My challenge is to read the Gospel of Matthew through once a month for 10 months. And if you're married or you have a family, I want to give you a double challenge. And that is to read the Gospel out loud at least two times. There is so much blessing whether it's with kids or grandkids, of just reestablishing this practice of reading the Bible out loud in our homes. And so I want to challenge you to do that. My kids are going to do it. There's going to be days where they complain, and it's okay. I love them, and I'm going to read them the Bible anyway. Uh, read the Bible out loud in your homes. So we don't only read the gospel diligently, we also read it Christologically. Here is perhaps one of the most underwhelming and shocking things I can tell you this morning. This book, the Gospel of Matthew, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even primarily about us. This is the true story about Jesus. And we see that from the very first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, not of Jared, not of Wes. And, and here's why I'm saying this. So many of us have been kind of fed at different times that we approach the Bible to hear what our purpose is in life or to hear uh, what, what it is that I need help for. And the Bible gives us help. The Bible gives us purpose, but it's not the primary reason the Bible is written. The Bible is written, given to us to reveal God. And it's here to reveal God the Son, Jesus the Christ. With my kids, I watch a lot of the Pixar movies, okay? And so there's this scene in The Incredibles that I can't get out of my head. We, on the way to Huntsville, Alabama for Thanksgiving, we had The Incredibles in our van and we must have w watched it. And of course, I'm driving, so I'm listening to it, you know, 14 times. So I've got these lines down pretty well. There's an argument that goes on between Mr. Incredible, who's also Bob Parr, and Elastigirl, who's also Helen Parr. And they're arguing over whether or not to let their son, Dashiell Robert Parr, compete in sports. And the dad, of course, wants to let the son compete in sports. Let him go out. He'll be great. It'll, it'll be good for him. And the mom says, well, we can't let him compete because he's got the superpower of lightning speed. I think they'll figure it out when he finishes his mile in like three seconds, right? It won't work. And Bob says, well, he'd be great. 
And Helen responds, this is not about you. Because she thinks that he is trying to relive the glory days through his son. Well, as humbly as I can put it, this Bible, this gospel, it's not about you. If you approach this primarily to get some self-help, to get a, uh, what is it, Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth, don't approach it that way. Approach it as, this is an opportunity for me to meet God. And along the way, you'll find your purpose in life. Along the way, you'll get that help you need. Along the way, you'll get rich blessings. But approach this to meet God. This is the story of Jesus. So Matthew must be read diligently. Get out your pens, get out your highlighters, you know, underline it, take some time and read it. And then it's to be read Christologically as the story of Jesus with massive implications for our lives. Next, we're going to see who Jesus is in these three parts. The son of Abraham, the son of David, and the hope for wanderers. The son of Abraham. Look at verses 2 to 6. It starts there, Abraham, and it goes all the way down to David the king in verse 6. Now, Matthew does this because he wants us to know something. Jesus being a direct descendant of Abraham means Jesus is the one, this, this promised heir through whom the promises made to Abraham are going to come to fulfillment. So if you want, hold your hand there in Genesis and then go back, or excuse me, in, in Matthew and go back to Genesis chapter 12. God calls this man, Abram, to take a step of faith and makes to him a great promise. And the promise is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. This is what the Lord said to Abram in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are incredible moments in the history of Israel, but never has it gotten so good that every family on planet earth was blessed through somebody in Israel until Jesus We're about to meet the king through whom not only God's people, but the whole world will be blessed. You've heard probably sometimes if you've ever been in church that Matthew is the most Jewish of the gospels. And that's true. But we shouldn't hear that and think that this is a gospel only for Jewish people. Matthew, in pointing out that Jesus is the son of Abraham, wants us to know this is good news for everyone. Because through Jesus, the whole world will be blessed. And that's why he's going to point out to us some people who are a little surprising in Jesus's genealogy. He points out to us Tamar. Tamar was probably a Canaanite woman that Judah's son married. Rahab. Rahab for sure was a Canaanite woman who lived in Jericho. Ruth. She's not from Israel. She's from Moab. And she marries into an Israelite family. 
Bathsheba in verse 6. We know that her husband Uriah was a Hittite. And we don't know whether or not Bathsheba was from Israel. So at least four times we've got these surprising outsiders finding their way inside into the lineage of Jesus. It's little wonder that in the trajectory of the story, after Jesus will obediently go and die on the cross and then rise from the grave, he's going to have this message for his followers. The end of the gospel will emphasize that this is good news for all the nations. This is what Jesus will tell us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You see, Jesus is the promised child of Abraham to bless the whole world. And then there's a second promise to Abraham in Genesis. This is Genesis 17, 6. God promised Abraham this. I, God, will make you, Abraham, exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Jesus, as a descendant of Abraham, would fulfill the promise to become the greatest king the world has ever known. Indeed, Abraham produced kings like eventually his descendant David, eventually his descendant Solomon, but it doesn't get better than Jesus. When we hear of Jesus being worshipped in Revelation, he'll be called the king of kings. That is to say that if all the kings had a king, it would be King Jesus. I want us to take a zoomed-in look for a minute on one of these people's stories, and it's the story of the person Ruth. I told you Ruth was from Moab and that she had married into an Israelite family. She married a young man named Kilion, and Kilion had moved to Moab during a famine with his dad, Elimelech, and his mother, Naomi. And, and Ruth, you know, marries this man. And then shortly after, uh, it's, it's not long, they're about 10 years married, and, and Kilian dies. And so Ruth is a, a very young widow. And, and Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And, and Kilian's brother dies, Malon. And, and so Naomi tells her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, hey, hey, I got nothing for you. I've got no future. Go home to your families. Marry someone else. And Orpah finally agrees. She goes back to, to marry somebody else. But Ruth clings to Naomi and clings to God in faith. Listen to the faith of this foreigner. She says to Naomi, your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also of anything but death parts me from you. Ruth chapter 1 verse 17. And, and we might think, well, hey, that's excellent. Good Ruth. Things must have just gotten so much better for her after she professed faith in God. Nuh-uh. After this, she comes back to Israel and she basically lives a poor subsistence life. She has to go uh, nearly beg and scrape to, to get enough food after a field has already been gleaned in order to scrape out an existence. But here's the deal. God sees her. God knows her. God cares for this foreign young woman. And he provides a young man named Boaz who, who meets this woman, who hears her story. Boaz is a godly man. Boaz decides not only to take care of her, but to marry her. 
to, to, to help redeem her. Soon, Boaz and Ruth are having a child. Soon, Naomi's faith in God is restored. And it turns out that this isn't just any family. This is a family that becomes part of the family that leads to David, part of the family that leads to Jesus. I mean, I mean just imagine that for a minute. Here's a woman who thought her life was over. She's scraping food from off the ground. And little does she know her great, 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 great grandson will be Jesus, the Messiah. God was not done with her life. So I already told you that we needed to read the gospel diligently and Christologically, but we also, if we're going to read Matthew well, we've got to read this humbly and prayerfully. Why would I say humbly? Well, God chose to put unlikely people in the line of his son. The story of Ruth tells us we should expect Jesus to be the kind of king who notices the lowly, those who the world neglects. You might say, well, I'm a nobody, or, or, or you know, I've never amounted anything, or, or Pastor, you don't know. I'm not some great name that, that could make it into a list like this. I promise you, Ruth did not think, oh, look at me. I'm going to be made into the line of the Messiah. No, no, no. She's just a girl growing up in Moab. And here she becomes one in the line of Jesus. And you might think, well, what about Abraham? He was a man. Everybody knows the name Abraham. True. But Abraham began as this pagan man living in Mesopotamia when God said, Abram, go, and I'm going to make you a new great nation. He was nobody, and God just chose him to bless him, to love him. Abram trusted God, and God delivered. So you read it humbly because God sees you. God knows you, and he's not done with you. He loves you. You also read the gospel prayerfully. We can't come into the sacred presence of King Jesus and not be moved. This is a book worth asking the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, open your heart, and help you to catch some of the magnificence of what's going on. It's so easy when we read and we're rushed to just skip over something like, oh, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. But when we slow down and think of how much love God poured into a family that we could have Ruth in the line of Christ, it says, hey, we need to slow down a little bit. And one way to do that, every morning when, before you get into the Bible, just say, Holy Spirit, help me to catch how amazing Jesus is. So this new genesis with Jesus, this son of Abraham, to be read and received diligently and Christologically and humbly and prayerfully, we next see that Jesus is the son of David. Look back with me in verse 6. Matthew is going to list all kinds of kings. David's a king, Solomon's a king, Rehoboam's a king, all the way down to Jeconiah as a king, but only one of them, are we told, is the king. Did you see that? Only one is it the father of David, the king. You see, Matthew doesn't want us to miss for a second 
that in the origin story of the hero Jesus, he is a direct descendant of King David. It's not an understatement to say that this is the most important person in the line of Jesus. That's because of some promises made to David that find their fulfillment in Jesus. Again, look back with me. This is worth seeing to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's a time in David's life where God has finally made him king in Jerusalem. And, and he's living in a palace and he looks and he sees that God is still being worshipped in a tent. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a temple so that God's not being worshipped in a tent anymore. And God admires the heart but says, well, that'll actually be done by your son Solomon. But as you desired to build a house for me, I'm going I'm to one-up you, David. I'm going to make a bigger house for you. Listen to these promises in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 14. God is speaking to David. I, God, will be to him, that is David, to your heir, a father. And he shall be to me a son. And skipping down to verse 16. And your house, that is David, your lineage and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, God just promised David an heir who would be so close to God that God called him his son. Now Solomon did build the temple, but Solomon was never called so close to God to be God's son. In fact, we know that Solomon, uh, through both religious pluralism and sexual sin, kind of turned away from God. This promise for an heir of David that was so close that he could be called God's son waited for Jesus. That's why when we hear God the Father speak in Matthew, we will hear him saying this in Matthew 3, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is that long-awaited heir of David. And in fact, Matthew pulls out all the stops. If we were to list the names of all the the kings, there'd be three sets from verse 2 to verse 6, there's 14 names. From verse 6 to verse 11, there's 14 names. And verse 12 uh, to verse 16, there's 14 names. And why is that? Why is he going to so much of 14, 14, 14? Well, in, in Hebrew, the name David, if we were to assign the Hebrew letter to a number, like A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, the name David adds up to 14. Matthew's like pulling out of the stops. And, and if we looked again and we counted the 14th name in the list is David's. He wants us to know time and again, this is the descendant of King David. So with all that, why does he mention in verse 6 that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah? Do you know this story? This is a dark mark on King David. When all of David's army went out to go to war, David decided to stay at home. And while he was at home one night on his palace, he looks out and he sees a woman bathing. And he wants her. He lusts after her. And he sends guards to take her. And they have an adulterous affair together. And then she lets them know, uh, David, I'm, I'm pregnant. And he has to get this 
taken care of. So he calls Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, home from the fight. And he says, you know, if I get this man to drink enough alcohol, he'll go home, he'll sleep with his wife, he'll never know, it'll be covered up, it'll be fine. But he's such an honorable man, he'll drink with the king, but he won't go home and sleep with his wife while all of his brothers in arms are at war. He sleeps out under the stars rather than going home and sleeping with his wife. And so finally, to cover up his sin, David sends a message to his general. And he sends it by the hand of Uriah. Hey, make sure to put Uriah where the fighting is the worst. And then pull back my men and make sure that Uriah is killed. That's exactly what happens. David essentially murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So, so, So put it all together, right? David commits adultery. He tries to cover it up. He can't. And so he murders the the guy in order to cover up his sin. Like, I don't care who you are. That is scandalous. And Matthew points it out. Why would he point out that kind of sexual scandal in the line of Jesus? Here's, Here's what I think we should do. We need to read this gospel with excitement because we can trust that this is a true story. That Matthew is not going to hide stuff. This isn't like the myth of Hercules, right? If, if Matthew was setting out just to make something up, to make it all seem good, he wouldn't tell us the bad parts. Like, oh, by the way, David committed adultery and had Uriah murdered. We can trust that this is true because he's giving us the account warts and all. He's telling us, look, Jesus came from the line of a king, yes, but a king who was indeed a sinner. And so if you showed up this morning as somebody who's messed up, who's committed sin, what you need to know is that God in his sovereignty appointed sinners like David to be in the line of his son and to also be saved. You can't outrun God's grace. He loves you, and you are not beyond saving. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a friend like this, but I I have. uh, Somebody once pointed out to me that Matthew made a mistake. And, And in the list of the names of kings, there in the middle, verses 6 to 11, Matthew skips three kings. And, and I, I had somebody point out, see, look, 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 there it is. Bible's full of mistakes. You can't trust it. Matthew didn't know what he's talking about. We ought to just be done. And, and, you know, if you ever have somebody like that, be polite. You know, don't, don't be mean. But you might say to them in love, don't be an idiot. Okay? There's, there's my, uh, you know, how, how to say to that in love. And I'm joking, but be polite. But here's, here's what it is. Let's not assume that Matthew is so dumb he can't read the Bible, right? Let's assume maybe there's a reason that he skipped those names. And if we went to 1 Chronicles 3 and we read the three names skipped, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah, here's what we would find. And Matthew Henry, the great commentator, was so helpful to point this out. Ahaziah was basically as wicked as the Israelite kings. He allied himself with the wicked kings of Israel. And when God sent a judge, Jehu, to kill the wicked king of Israel, he shot Ahaziah dead the same day. Joash was 
began his kingship well, but he was only seven years old. And as soon as the priest who raised him died, Joash rebelled against God, so much so that he took all of the sacred gifts in the temple and used them to buy alliances with God's enemies. Amaziah, well, he reigned after his father Joash was assassinated, and he got such a taste for violence that he led an unholy war against Israel, started his own civil war, and he was killed in the battle, or excuse me, he was killed after the battle when he was assassinated. So you had one that was as wicked as the kings of Israel, one who placed his faith in money, and one who loved violence and died at the tip of a sword. You see what happens here. It's not that Matthew made a mistake. He's giving us a warning. Women like Ruth and women like Bathsheba, women like Tamar are included in the line of Christ. But three Israelite kings, three kings in the line are excluded. They're, they're skipped over. And it's as if to say this to us this morning, hey, you're going to meet a king who's a king of mercy but he's not a king to be trifled with. He is a king of great compassion and great love. But don't come to him with the assumption that because you have the right pedigree, you have the right family line, you, you've shown up in church every day for years, you give plenty of money that you're automatically right with him. He's going to tell us the way to be right with him. And we've got to come to him on his terms. Don't let your name be skipped over because you assume you're right with him just because of who you are or how you were born. Well, the last in Jesus' lineage is from the deportation to Babylon all the way to Jesus being born. And what's so interesting in this list, if, if you know from history, it, it's a dark time for the whole nation. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was sent to demolish Judah. He, he besieged Jerusalem. He successfully broke down the walls. He killed most of the inhabitants. The few that were left, he deported and scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire. It was a terrible time. And God had appointed this one prophet, Jeremiah, to be a preacher in this time. And he warned Judah over and over again, repent, turn back to God so that he won't punish you. And again and again and again, the people would not listen. But God gave Jeremiah something else to preach, and it was some hope in all of the dark messages. And this is what Jeremiah preached in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, by tracing the line of Jesus through the exiles, Matthew wants us to know we're going to meet a king who is the fulfillment. He, he's the one who brings about this new covenant. When God will forever make a people for himself. The promises made through prophet Jeremiah went so far beyond just when Israel came back after the proclamation of King Cyrus. And that's why I say we need to read this gospel intentionally. We need to read this gospel intentionally. Here's what I mean. There's a temptation I get every time when I read the Bible 
And sure, maybe it's because I'm a bit of an egghead. I'll own it. I'm a nerd. I get it. But I read it just to learn something new. Just to be fascinated. Just to say, oh, that's so cool. I didn't know that before. That's interesting. And if, if I'm reading a, a place in the Bible that I've read before, I can kind of get, you know, just a little bored. Just a little like, well, I already, I already know this. And let me tell you, Matthew, by tracing the lineage of Jesus all the way through those in exile, is saying, don't make that mistake. This is not about our entertainment. The intent of Matthew is to make us full-fledged followers of Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to be fascinated. He wants us to follow him. He wants us to kneel before him, get in line, and follow him as the king that he is. And look at how he does it, right? We, we read some names that probably everybody knew, right? You, even if you haven't grown up in church, if I said the name David, you're probably like, well, I've, I've heard of David. If I said Abraham, you're like, okay, I've, I've heard of Abraham. Probably most of you have heard of Solomon. But right, what about names like Azor and Akim and Mathan? I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about these guys. No, nobody does, right? They, these are just ordinary people from that time in between when Ezra and Nehemiah end off and when Jesus comes on the scene. And here's the message for us. God used ordinary wanderers, men and women who just, just got up and, and, and loved their wife and, and did the normal things God had called them to do to become part of the lineage of Jesus, part of the family of God. You see, there are men in here that all we know is that God chose to use them to be in the line of the Messiah. You have a role to play in this story. Here's your role. Meet Jesus trust Jesus and follow Jesus. And I promise it will be the most exciting your life can be. The Bible promises eternal life for those of us who commit to follow Jesus as the Lord that he is. But I got a few questions for you, and these are, are very important. Answer this question first. Do I follow Jesus as the Lord of my life, or do I merely want him to be part of my life? Do I submit to Jesus, recognizing he's in charge, or do I just want him another word of advice, and I really want to stay in charge of my life? Do I seek, by God's grace, to obey Jesus, or do I re merely read the Bible to find something fascinating? You see, if you're not following Jesus as Lord, there's one of two things going on. Either you're in rebellion and you need to repent and turn back to him as the Lord that he is, or you never really submitted to him in the first place and you need to become a Christian. To receive Jesus as Savior is also to receive him as Lord. And that's why Matthew presents him to us from the beginning as king. He was introduced as Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that when we meet Mary and Joseph, their last name was Christ. It wasn't like Joseph and Mary Christ, right? Uh, Christ is the Greek for the Hebrew Messiah. And Messiah just means the anointed king. Here he is, the anointed one in David's line, the king. 
Well, let's finish this morning with one last story. The woman Rahab in Jesus's line is to me the most startling. Do you remember Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute living in Jericho, this wealthy city on the east of Canaan. And Rahab had a problem. She had heard stories of this incredible people, this army that had a God marching before him. She'd heard stories that this people had walked on dry land across the Red Sea. She'd heard stories of how they'd slaughtered kings and that no one could withstand them. And then, knocking on her door one day, were two foreigners that she knew right away were not from Jericho. And they asked for a place to stay. And she had a crisis Would she harbor these spies, Jewish spies Joshua had sent in to spy out Jericho and the land, or would she turn them over? She allows them to have a room while, while she thinks about it, and then soon the king's men hear word that the Jewish spies went and visited Rahab's inn, this prostitute's inn, and they ask her to hand over the spies. Here's this crisis. What's she going to do? She could turn these men in, be in favor with the king of Jericho. She doesn't do that. She hides them up on the roof. She deceives, we'll say, the men of Jericho into going and looking for them elsewhere. But then she professes this kind of faith. This is recorded in Joshua 2. Rahab says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. The spies agreed. They said, all right, tell you what. If you mean what you say and you really are placing your faith in our God, tie this ribbon around your window and we'll make sure you're okay. And if you know the rest of the story, the army of Israel comes, they march around Jericho. On the seventh day, they march some more. They raise the trumpet blast. The walls of that great city come crashing down except for one place and that is the house of Rahab. She's saved. And apparently after that, she not only is saved, but she becomes part of the people of Israel because she marries an Israelite man. And not only that, but this once prostitute, this once Canaanite woman, once an enemy, becomes part of the line that leads to David, that leads to Jesus. You see, including Rahab, Matthew wants us to know this about Jesus. We're going to meet a king who is a redeemer, a king who's in the business of buying those who seem like they are dead in sin out of it and giving them new life. We should expect a king that loves to change what seems a lost cause. That's why Matthew mentions, oh yeah, and by the way, this was by Rahab. Are you ready to meet King Jesus? Are are you ready to embark on this journey of really digging in and meeting him as he is? You know, 
unlike us. What we're going to see in page after page after page of Jesus is he's going to have every opportunity to sin, to to give rise to anger. He's going to have enemies. His own family is going to think he's nuts at one point. He's going to have people betray him, turn on him. Uh, They're going to run away. And not once, not one time is he going to sin. And then he's going to do the unthinkable. This king, this one who deserves to be worshipped by everyone, this one who we will find out is in fact God, is going to decide to take the very punishment that our sins deserve. Here's your spoiler alert. This Jesus is going to go and die on a cross. And he's going to do that because he loves us. We're going to find out as the story unfolds that there's going to be those who are able to look at him and say, truly this is the Son of God and that this one died for my sin. We're also going to read that even though he really dies, this king is not going to stay dead. Three days later, he's going to rise from the grave. He's coming back. He is going to appear to hundreds before he ascends to his father and takes that rightful place as the king at the father's right hand until one day he returns to bring about the kingdom in all of its glory. Here's my question to you. Do you need to commit to this Jesus is king? If you're here And I want to give an opportunity. Wes is going to come up here in just a minute to play some music. The point is this. If you are the type who maybe you've been to church, maybe maybe you, you kind of like Jesus, maybe you're fascinated by him, but you never committed to him as the Lord of your life, then I want to invite you to become a Christian. And I'm going to be right down here. You just come forward. We're not going to do anything magical. You're going to pray and you're going to trust Jesus. And he is there with open arms to forgive you, just like he forgave Rahab, just like he forgave Ruth, just like he forgave David and Bathsheba. I also, Christians, want to give you an opportunity to respond. You may be the type that, for whatever reason, you you know Jesus. He is the Lord of your life, but you've drifted. This world has gone through a lot between COVID and, and, and the up and down market and everything, and I, I get it, right? It, it may have been a while since you've even cracked open the Bible. If you're going to take seriously this challenge, you say, yeah, I'm going to get in. I'm going to try to read the Gospel of Matthew 10 times over the next 10 months. I want to invite you to come down. Just briefly share that with me so I can pray for you, and we can ask God's blessing on your life as you get into the Gospel. Let's pray, and then whatever God lays on your heart, be ready to take that step of obedience. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you so much, Jesus, that we get to meet you, that that you're not, you know, this, this king who stays in the shadows, that you appointed Matthew to to give us some good news and to let us meet you as you are and that we can trust that this is a true story. You're not hiding the scary parts. You give us things as they happened. And you let us know that you're the kind of king that redeems us. Would you help us to read the gospel and and read the gospel as you have taught us to read it? Give us humility. Give us prayer as we come before you. Help us to read it and know that, Jesus, this is about you. Make us diligent readers. Give us excitement and let us read it as those who intend to be changed. 
I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use this good news to change me and to change us. We need some hope. We need someone we can trust and we can follow. And that person is Jesus. We need to be reminded of how big he is, how good he is, how much of a king he is. And I pray that you'd use this time to remind us of that. Holy Spirit, if there's somebody here who's not yet taken that step of faith, who's not yet trusted in Jesus, would you move their heart right now? Would you give them the the warm courage to trust that you love them and that Jesus is their Savior? I pray for them right now. Jesus, would you give all of us as Christians the courage to say, yes, I will read the Gospel of Matthew 10 times. Give families the courage to say, yes, I'll read the Gospel of Matthew out loud twice over the next 10 months. And then I pray that you would bless us. Bless us for the time that we're in your word, Jesus. Let it produce in us worship and joy. I ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.